This episode of the Art of Manliness podcast is brought to you by The Strenuous Life. The Strenuous Life is an online platform that we created to help you put into action all the things we've been writing about on the Art of Manliness and talking about on the podcast for the past 10 years. We've done that by creating 50 different badges based around 50 different skills, hard skills like self-defense, wilderness survival, and soft skills like personal finance and social skills and entrepreneurship. We also provide weekly challenges and also accountability for your physical fitness and doing a good deed every day so you can start thinking outside of yourself. We got enrollment coming up in a few weeks, the week of June 10th. want to be one of the first to know when enrollment opens up, head over to strenuouslife.co, get your email on our list. We'll send an email out when enrollment opens up. Spots fill fast. So as soon as you get the email, sign up and make sure our email strenuouslife.co is whitelisted in your email provider because sometimes it goes to spam and people miss out on the enrollment. So strenuouslife.co, hope to see you there. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. This week marks the 75th anniversary of the D-Day landings at Normandy. This amphibious allied effort comprised a joint effort between British, Canadian, and American troops. Operation Overlord was massive in scope and required effectively launching 12,000 planes and 7,000 vessels, landing 24,000 paratroopers in the enemy territory, and transporting 160,000 troops across the English Channel and onto over 50 miles of beaches. To commemorate this epic operation, I talked to historian Alex Kershaw about his latest book, the first wave, D-Day warriors who led the way to victory in World War II. We begin our conversation with the context of the invasion and how the plans for it began years before 1944. Alex then walks us through the pre-dawn missions that paved the way for the larger invasion in the morning and how perilously close the first missions came to failing. Along the way, he tells the stories of individual men who took part in the sweeping operation, including Frank Lilliman, the first paratrooper to land in Normandy, Theodore Roosevelt Jr., a 56-year-old general and son of President Theodore Roosevelt, and Lord Lovett, Scottish commando who brought along his personal bagpipe Piper to pipe the British commandos ashore on D-Day. Alex and I discuss why only four medals of honor and one Victoria Cross were awarded on D-Day, despite the high number of heroic acts performed that day by ordinary men placed in extraordinary circumstances. We end our conversation discussing the legacy of D-Day three-fourths of a century later. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash D-Day. Alex joins me now via clearcast.io. All right, Alex Kershaw, welcome back to the show. Great to be with you. So we had you on last time to talk about your book, The Liberator, the 45th Infantry Division in World War II, particularly Felix Sparks. You got a new book out, The First Wave, The D-Day Warriors Who Led the Way to Victory in World War II. So you've written lots of books about World War II. Why do you think now is the time to write a book about about one of the most famous invasions, battles of that war now? Well, the 75th anniversary of D-Day is coming up next week on the 6th of June, and there are so few guys left alive who landed that day in the greatest invasion in modern history. I wanted to celebrate them while there's some alive, and I also wanted to write a book that reminds people of the enormous heroism and importance of that day. And how many are still alive, veterans of that that invasion? Well, we know that there's less than 5% of the World War II generation alive today. So put it this way, for the 70th anniversary of D-Day, there were more than 300 American veterans went back to Normandy. And I've been told that this year, on June the 6th, there'll be maybe 30. So just in the last five years, we have 10% of the number that were there five years ago. So we're really looking at a very fast decline of 
that entire generation, the very few guys left alive today that saw any action on D-Day. Well, D-Day, you know, people, we know that that battle well because it's so ingrained in the popular culture here in America, thanks to movies like Saving Private Ryan, where you know Spielberg made this very visceral reenactment of World War II. But I, I, I know as I was reading this book, I learned things about D-Day that I had no clue about. So before we get into the details of D-Day, can you give folks a some background so we can understand the context of the importance of this invasion. So like, what was the state of the war in early 1944? Sure, early 1944. Actually, people have to remember that D-Day, June the 6th, 1944, was not the first major invasion that Americans had been involved in in the European theater. So I can answer your question by giving you a few other dates. November 1942 was the first time Americans saw combat, they invaded North Africa. Then July 1943, Americans were involved in the invasion of Sicily. Actually, that was a larger invasion than D-Day in terms of number of men, over 200,000 Allied troops in Sicily in July 1943. September 1943, we nearly come very, very close to disaster at Salerno, mainland Italy. And then January 1944, we invade the, the Italian main mainland at Anzio and also get our noses very blooded by the Germans. So there had actually been four amphibious invasions in Europe before D-Day, June the 6th, 1944. Europe was um, Nazi-occupied, so France, um, most of Italy, uh, the Netherlands, Western Europe was under the Nazi jackboot. Uh, over 10 million Europeans, Western Europeans, had either been killed or were in concentration camps. Europe had suffered for, in some cases, over four years from Nazi oppression. Um, so the D-Day invasion was something that the Americans had wanted to launch since 1942. And finally, in June of 1944, we invaded northwestern Europe. And the significance of, of that invasion of D-Day, June the 6th, was that we began to liberate northwestern Europe. And it marked the beginning, the successful completion of the Battle of Normandy in June and July of 1944 marked the beginning of the end of Nazi rule over Western Europe. It was the beginning of the, it was the liberation of Western Europe. It was the beginning of the restoration of peace and democracy and human rights and civilization to a place that had been in immense darkness for several years. So they'd been planning something like this for two years. I mean, at this point in the war, like, were the allies, were they, did they feel like they were winning, that they were making progress and this, or like that this was the thing they had to win if they were going to win the war? This was the, this was the major job that this was what the Americans had been pressing for from 1942 onwards. They had two wars to win. Remember the Americans in the Pacific and in Europe, and it had been agreed that they would finish off the Nazi regime or try to finish off the Nazi regime before they would deal with the fascist militarist government of Imperial Japan. So there was a lot of anxiety and a lot of pressure in Washington placed on Eisenhower and others to get the job done in Europe so that the Americans could turn to the Pacific. And, and that's why the Americans were impatient for this invasion. They had wanted it to actually occur in 1943, but we wouldn't have been well enough prepared and that would have inevitably led to disaster. So yes, the June 1944 invasion was really, really about finishing, finishing the job. But there was no confidence, real confidence, 100% confidence 
that the D-Day invasion of June the 6th would, would absolutely work. Far from it. Uh, most senior planners and generals were very anxious indeed. Well, let's talk about some of the senior planners and generals, like the architects behind that. So you mentioned Eisenhower. He was one. Who else was involved in planning D-Day? Mostly Montgomery. In fact, the overlord plan was not Montgomery's original idea, but Montgomery was in charge of it and um, adapted the overlord plan. He added the beach of which we now know as Utah. There were there were two American beaches on D-Day, Omaha and Utah. Montgomery added that beach. He widened the front. He increased the forces substantially, made key adjustments to the plan. But I should say that Churchill, Eisenhower, Montgomery was actually fairly confident, but not 100% confident that the plan would work. But from the politicians right down to many generals, there was a lot of nervousness, a lot of uncertainty about whether this huge invasion would actually pay off. And, and so for those who aren't familiar, Montgomery was the British senior officer during yeah, World War II. Yeah, he was overall commander of ground forces, uh, allied forces on the ground on D-Day. So he was, the, he was numero uno in terms of commanding the battle on D-Day. Eisenhower was allied supreme commander. As soon as he gave the decision to go on the 5th of June, 1944, it was Montgomery who had overall control of the Allied forces. And how did these guys keep such a large invasion secret from the Nazis? Or, or did the Nazis know that something was coming eventually? They just didn't know where or something. Yeah, you're, you're exactly right. They, they knew that we were going to invade. They didn't know where or when exactly. Rommel, who was in charge of the German forces in Normandy, Erwin Rommel, the great German general, he knew that it would be maybe the spring or the summer. He wasn't sure whether it would be Normandy or the Pas de Calais, which is closest to England. So we had a very effective deception campaign. And the aim of that campaign was basically to make, to keep the Germans guessing. As long as they divided their forces, as long as they weren't sure exactly where we were coming, and as long as they didn't know when, we would enjoy the element of surprise. And we did. So we typically commemorate the invasion of Normandy on June 6th. But as you said earlier, the, 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 the story of Normandy begins even earlier than that. I mean, you could say it begins 1942, but you start your book June 5th with Eisenhower pacing his office, chain smoking like he typically did throughout the war, trying to figure out if he was going to do this thing or not. I mean, how close was Eisenhower to calling the whole thing off? He wouldn't have called the whole thing off. What he would have done was to delay the invasion yet again, because what had happened was that the invasion was supposed to happen, was supposed to go ahead on the 5th of June, but on the 4th of June, because of the terrible weather conditions, he had delayed it uh, 24 hours to the 6th of June. He'd been told by his chief meteorologist that there was a, an 18-hour window beginning on the 5th of June and going into the afternoon of the 6th of June, when the conditions in the English Channel would be still rough, but they wouldn't be disastrous. And so the big decision he had was whether he was going to believe that weather forecast and whether he was going to actually launch the invasion on the 6th or wait another couple of weeks for the next possible window of opportunity. And at, at about 4.30 in the morning on the 5th of June, he paced back and forth in Southwark House near Portsmouth in front of his overlord commanders. And he finally decided that, yes, he would pull the trigger and he would take advantage and he would believe the meteorological report. Even though conditions would be rough, the invasion stood a 
fairly good chance of, of success. But even then, as you said earlier, Eisenhower and other generals and leaders weren't 100% sure it was going to be a success. And there were some experts who estimated that the casualties of Operation Overlord could reach as high as 70%. Eisenhower even wrote a letter that was to be released if the operation failed, in which he took full responsibility for the failure. Yeah, I mean, he, they, you know, no one was 100% confident you know, that this is a very, very difficult, uh, this has never been attempted before on this scale. There were for example, over 700,000 items on the uh, uh, items used during the invasion. I mean, it, the, the scale of it was mind-boggling. It was uh, Eisenhower himself said that it was, you know, was almost more afraid of the scale of the operation and managing it and orchestrating it than he was actually of the the reality of carrying it out. So Bradley, the American general who would be very much involved on in terms of the invasion of Omaha Beach and later on in Normandy, he said that um, the D-Day invasion was Hitler's great opportunity and also a, a great risk to him. He said that Nazism might yet prevail and that if the invasion failed, then the Allies probably would never have gone again. They would have, they would have taken an awful long time, if ever, to marshal such a force again. And Nazi Europe may have remained Nazi Europe. We might not have liberated that part of Western Europe. Wow. So let's talk about some of the first people to land in France when the invasion began. And you follow this one group of Americans who were American paratroopers who, I mean, it was basically like, it was early, it was like like 12 o'clock in the morning on June 6th. They were paratrooping in. Uh, there was a guy named there, Frank Lilliman was one of the men, like he was the first paratrooper to land in France. What was those early groups' role in the invasion? Frank Lilliman was in command of the American Pathfinder unit that jumped into Normandy at 12, 15 a.m. They were the very first 18 guys. He was their leader. And they were the very first guys to see combat on, very first Americans, I should say, to see combat on D-Day. And their job was to set up radars and very bright lights to guide in the main sky train of uh, Screaming Eagles. So six and a half thousand guys in the 101st Airborne Division needed to be guided and directed. The planes carrying them needed to be guided and directed to the drop zones in Normandy. And Frank Lilliman and his team of Pathfinders arrived first to set up those guiding lights and radars. The main body of 101st Airborne troops arrived around 12 50 a.m. Lilliman had about half an hour with his men to set up the lights and the beacons, and the main force of six and a half thousand troops from the 101st Airborne uh, came in around 40 minutes later. And so there was like very little margin for error. Very little, no, exactly. Had Lilliman not set up those lights in drop zone A, then the the first C-47s, the first Dakotas flying all the way across the English Channel, wouldn't have known where to drop their drop their men, as it. Turned out the airborne operation on D-Day was very highly disorganized. There was a lot of chaos. I mean, it, it succeeded, but there was an awful lot of chaos. Some guys were dropped 30 miles away from where they were supposed to land. In fact, Lilliman was dropped about a mile away from where he was supposed to be dropped. It's very difficult to drop some thousands of troops in darkness under heavy enemy fire and land them in exactly the right place. It was uh, always going to be somewhat disorganized. There were very high risks involved, but uh, thank goodness the Allied 
airborne operation worked, although it was very, very chaotic and a lot of guys lost their, lost their lives. Well, I mean, you see a lot of improvisation going on. Lilliman dropped, he's far away and he's had to look around. He's like, where can I put this thing? And he had to decide on the, decide on the fly. Oh, I could put it in this, I guess it was a church tower he ended up putting it in. Yeah, the, um, you know, what's interesting about Lilliman was that uh, he, uh, that was his first day of combat and that most of the guys in the 101st Airborne had never seen combat before. The 82nd Airborne was was a veteran unit. It had it had been tested already, but the vast majority of Americans and, in fact, Canadians, all of the Canadians, had never seen combat before. So, you know, two out of three Americans on on D-Day had never had a gun fired at them in anger. So they were really were being tested in the most extreme uh, circumstances for the very first time. So another individual you followed. And these, this very early part of the invasion was Major John Howard. He was a British Army officer. Tell us about his role in the invasion. John Howard was the commander of the Oxen Bucks. They were an elite unit, and they were tasked with seizing two critical bridges that had to be held to, uh, in case the Germans counterattacked. And those were bridges that uh, one was called Pegasus Bridge uh, across the Khan Canal, and there was another bridge nearby across the Orne River, and they landed in three gliders, horse gliders made from wood and canvas, crash landed at 90 miles per hour. And amazingly, the lead pilot, a guy called Jim Walwick in Howard's glider, managed to put the nose down of that glider, crash landing at 90 miles per hour, only about 30, 40 yards from Pegasus Bridge. They landed at 12.15 a.m. And they had taken Pegasus Bridge by 12.25 in just 10 minutes and then they sent out the first success signal of D-Day, which was a code, a series of code words, ham and jam, ham for one bridge, jam for the other bridge. And that went out, that, that signal was sent out at 12.25 a.m. and was the first successful operation completed on D-Day. And the first Allied soldier, we believe, to be killed on D-Day was a guy called Lieutenant Den Brotheridge, who was a very close friend of Major John Howard. Again, all of these guys were seeing combat for the first time. So you had this uh, initial paratrooper invasion, part of the attack, but you also had the invasion coming from the sea. And you begin that part of the story with the U.S. Army 8th Infantry Regiment, I believe. And one of the division's acting commanders was Theodore Roosevelt Jr. Tell us about this. is. Teddy Roosevelt's son. Yeah. I mean, you know, you've got the you've got the most rugged butch macho president in US history, and his son is on a, a landing craft and he begged to go in with the first wave and actually landed with the first wave with the eighth infantry regiment of the fourth division at Utah. He was fifty-six years old, so he was the oldest general officer on D-Day. He had a bad heart, arthritis, and huffed and puffed his way across Utah Beach using a walking stick. So uh, I, I, he was so well-connected, given his name and his heritage, that basically the U.S. Army agreed when he begged them to go in with his men in the first wave. But it was extraordinary. I mean, he was, you know, to have that guy who was so old and, uh, and so senior risk his life in the first wave was, was amazing. Was he a career military officer? Yes, he was. Yeah, he'd, uh, he'd, he'd fought all the way through World War II. He was uh, actually seen action, first of all, with the the big red one, the first division, he'd been in North Africa and then had, had fought in um, the Sicilian campaign with the big red one. That was the first division. And uh, his son, actually, on D-Day, on June the 6th, 1944, you have 
Roosevelt at 56 years old, he's got a son who's also involved in the landings and his son was with the big red one on Omaha Beach. So father and son both seeing action, but on separate beaches on D-Day. So you have this early morning part of the invasion happened like right at around 12, one o'clock in the morning. Then you had another wave of American paratroopers jump out. Who were the men that you follow from this group that jumped out later on in the morning? I mean, the early morning, I'm talking about like three or four o'clock in the morning. Well, I mentioned several characters within the airborne operation, both American and British. We had the 101st Airborne and the 82nd Airborne on the far western flank of the 50-mile front, and then the 6th Airborne were on the far eastern flank. And I take characters from all of the Allied nations. But uh, one guy in particular that I really admired was uh, General Jim Gavin, and he was the assistant division commander for the 82nd Airborne. And um, he said that when he jumped, when he landed early in the morning, on June the 6th, 1944, there were hardly any men that he could find to, to, to put together into a combat unit. And in fact, he spent the first couple of hours on the ground in Normandy watching a couple of his men fish out equipment from a flooded field because it, a lot of fields where the uh, airborne landed had been flooded by the Germans. And they, you know, tragically, some guys landed with very heavy packs in just three or four foot of water and drowned because that's all it would take. So, was an enormous amount of chaos, and Gavin said that you know it took at least a couple of hours before they even had any equipment to fight with. Uh, Maxwell Taylor, the uh, division commander for the 101st Airborne, he said that never had so many been commanded by uh, so few that he had a single private. This is a division commander had a single private under his command for the first 45 minutes of D-Day. So that just goes to show you how badly dispersed and how chaotic the initial operations were for the airborne divisions. We're going to take a quick break for your word from our sponsors. Turn your dream into reality with Squarespace. Squarespace makes it easier than ever to launch your passion project, whether you're looking to start a new business, showcase your work, publish content, sell products, and more. Squarespace is the tool for you. With beautiful templates created by world-class designers and the ability to customize just about anything with a few clicks, you can easily make a great-looking website yourself. It's got this powerful e-commerce functionality, lets you sell anything online, and analytics to help you grow your site in real time. Everything is optimized for mobile right out of the box, and there's nothing to patch or upgrade ever. And if you ever run into trouble... Squarespace's 24-7 award-winning customer support is there to help you. I used Squarespace recently. My wife's in charge of her 20th high school reunion, so we created a website for that, got it up in just a few minutes, and I used the e-commerce functionality to sell the tickets. Pretty cool. So if you'd like to try this out, got a free trial for you, go to squarespace.com manliness, and when you're ready to launch, use offer code manliness to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Again, squarespace.com manliness for a free trial, offer code manliness to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Also by Saks Underwear. You may not think of underwear as an exciting Father's Day gift, but that means you haven't tried Saks Underwear yet. Saks isn't just any underwear, it puts all other underwear to shame. Their ballpark pouch is a game changer. It's designed with the male anatomy in mind. It's got these internal mesh panels that keep everything separate. No more chafing, no more sticking. It is fantastic. No more friction as well. Saks also has a large selection of styles, including two-in-one training shorts and swim shorts, also with the ballpark pouch. So you can find the perfect pair of everyday wear, working out, traveling, you name it, they've got it. And it's all backed by their 100% comfort guarantee. There's still time to get Saks underwear for Father's Day. Order a few pairs now and take advantage of this great limited time deal. $5 off plus free shipping on your first purchase. But to get this great offer, you need to use my promo code. It's AOM at checkout. So go to Saks Underwear, S-A-X-X, underwear.com. Use promo code AOM at checkout 
You'll get $5 off plus free shipping on your first purchase. One more time, saxunderwear.com, promo code AOM. Check out the Kinetic Boxer Brief. And now back to the show. Well, I mean, how did they keep it together despite all that on the ground confusion? Well, you know, it took a, you know, they had the special clickers that, you know, the, 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 the click clack of the, the special metal snappers they had. You, those are the famous scenes from The Longest Day when it's click click and then you're supposed to answer with a click click. And they, it was a lot of chaos and confusion, a lot of fear. But, uh, you know, you've got over 12,000 Americans being dropped into one area of Normandy and sooner or later they found each other and formed small groups and then those small groups became bigger groups. But it was 48 hours, it was literally two days before the 101st Airborne and the 82nd Airborne had real organization and structure and where there was clear command throughout both divisions. All right, so also early the, the dawn part of the day, that's when the amphibious assault begins. I mean, can you describe what that was like? Well, it depended where you were. If you were on Utah with Roosevelt and the uh, 4th Division, it was a very successful operation out of almost 30,000 Americans landed on Utah Beach. Less than 200 were casualties. So the largest number of guys killed on Utah were killed by mines on the beach and the dunes just inland. Omaha, it was a very, very different story indeed. Over 900 Americans killed, over 2,500 American casualties, carnage and confusion and chaos and slaughter. If you look at the first 20 minutes of the film, Serving Private Ryan, that recreates what it was like in a couple of sectors on that beach early on 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 D-Day. Those landing in the first wave in the deadliest sector of Omaha Beach, which is shown in Serving Private Ryan, that was Company A of the 116th Infantry Regiment of the 29th Division. And out of one National Guard unit of 180 guys landing in the first wave, we believe that 102 were killed and many more were wounded. So it was a slaughterhouse in certain sectors of Omaha Beach. It was very, very bloody indeed. And in fact, we didn't take control of that of that entire five and a half miles, six miles of beach until around midday, even though we landed at 6.30, 6.32 a.m. in the morning. It was a very, very fierce combat. It was very touch and go. Midday on, on June the 6th, 1944, Omar Bradley out at sea, is looking at uh, Omaha Beach and receiving terrible reports of, of men being butchered like hogs. That was one report. And was seriously considering withdrawing troops off Omaha Beach because it was such a disaster. We, we, we really, really, really were in serious trouble there uh, in the early hours of D-Day. And were they expecting that or were they expecting this to be like a cakewalk? Uh, a lot of guys have been told that the, the beach would have been very heavily bombed, there'd be craters to seek shelter in and that the German defenses would have been destroyed. And that the, the main thing they, sh- they should worry about is when they got inland, the Germans would counterattack. So you have to imagine being in the first wave, one guy I follow is a guy called John Spalding, who's a platoon commander with the big red one. He landed at Easy Red Sector at around 6.32 a.m. on June the 6th, 1944. You have to imagine what it was like for him when he dared glance over the side of that landing craft coming in in very rough seas and he sees that everything that he's been told would happen hasn't happened. The, defeat, the, the beach defenses haven't been destroyed. The German machine gun emplacements and strong points haven't been touched. And he knew three or 400 yards from Omaha Beach coming in in the first wave that he was basically walk, you know, approaching a death trap. And that's exactly what it turned out to be. Uh, his unit, E Company of the 16th Infantry Regiment, suffered over 50% casualties on D-Day. That's 
more than half of the guys with him were killed or wounded. Well, let's talk about the British part of the, the Allied invasion. One character that stood out to me was Simon Fraser, Lord Lovett. Tell us about this guy because he led this group, but he also had a pipeman named, like, just follow him around everywhere. Well, I, I love Lord Lovett. He was 34 years old. He had two and a half thousand British commandos under his control. About 177 of those guys were actually Frenchmen, the keeper commando, but he'd only been in combat two days previously during the entire war. But those two days had seen really spectacularly successful commando raids. So by the time he landed on June the 6th, 1944 at Sword Beach with the first wave of commandos, he was a legend among his troops. He was an Oxford graduate, a, an ace a very ruthless Scottish uh, Highland chief. And um, he had the only guy among the Allied forces, the over 150,000 guys coming from the sea, the only guy who wore a kilt and played the pipes was a guy called Bill Millen, a fellow Scotsman. And incredibly, when they landed, uh, Lovett went first and Millen was a few yards behind him and Millen was playing the pipes and Lovett kept saying to Millen, keep playing the pipes. And he played the pipes all that day. I, I saw, I found a, a really amazing oral history with Bill Millen who survived the war. Lovett was very badly wounded about a week later. Millen survived the war and he said that when he came in on D-Day, Lovett told him to play the pipes and he was wearing his kilt and he watched Lovett go first because he wanted Lovett to test the water to see whether it was going to be up to his neck or up to his waist. And lo and behold, it was only up to Lovett's waist. And Millen wasn't wearing anything underneath his kilt, like a true Scotsman. You know, you, you're not supposed to wear underwear if you're a true Scot under your kilt. And he said that the water was extremely cold indeed, and his private parts were very small indeed after he'd been in the water for a while. <laughs> but then incredibly, he waded ashore and he walked up and down this uh, this beach under, you know, very intense fire three times playing the pipes under Lovett's orders. So uh, extraordinary, extraordinary courage, extraordinary kind of eccentric British attitude towards combat. Yeah, was that just like a romantic, like he was like, like a romantic thing? Like love Yeah, you couldn't just- make it up really. I mean, it was sort of, you know, really swashbuckling, arrogant British style in combat. And, and how did that group of British soldiers do at S.W.O.R.D.? How did they fare? Well, the commandos came in uh, just after a, a British unit called the East Yorks. And the East Yorks were, were very, very much chewed up. They had a lot of, suffered a lot of casualties. But the commandos got across the breach pretty quickly and then pushed inland. That's, uh, some units from the commandos took the, the town of Wiesterham. But Lovett's job was to get ashore and then link up with John Howard and the Oxen Bucks at Pegasus Bridge and reinforce those uh, those glider troops that had come in at 12.15 a.m. And it, in fact, that link up occurred around midday on June the 6th, and it's a very famous scene where John Howard is waiting very impatiently, very anxiously for the commandos to turn up and reinforce him because he's under a great strain. And then suddenly one of his men hears the, this very weird sound and he can't believe what can't believe his ears, and uh, he says to a friend of his, a mate of his, like, "Are those bagpipes? Is that is that the sound of a bagpipe?" And then, sure enough, coming down the road, marching in towards Pegasus Bridge, comes Bill Millen and Lord Lovett just ahead of him, and the British commandos who made that very successful and crucial link up between the Oxenbucks and the glider forces and the airborne forces and the seaborne forces. So, when those link ups occurred for the British 
on the eastern flank, and then for the Americans linking up with the 4th Division and the 101st Airborne, they occurred around the same time, late morning of June the 6th. That was a very important moment during the invasion because what you had is the guys dropped in from the air were now united and working beside the guys that came in from the sea. And that was a, that was a very important moment because it meant that we were, we were united on the ground. Air for, airborne forces and seaborne forces could fight together. What was the initial German response to the invasion? They were very, they were very shocked. I mean, there's some famous scenes that in books and movies where, you know, the Germans shelled and then they, they wake up literally and they look out of their pillboxes and they see this invasion armada on the, of the size that occurred on, on D-Day. So they were stunned. Imagine being a, a German yokel that you, you know, you're in a, a, the best part place you could possibly be as a German during World War II. It wasn't Stalingrad. It wasn't in, in Anzio. You were having, a very nice time indeed in a rural bliss in Normandy. You knew something might happen one day, but then one day, then on June the 6th, you wake up and you see this, this enormous armada and then you see these landing craft coming towards you. So they were shocked, a lot of them were stunned. They were not, not many of them were crack troops. Their heart really wasn't in it for a lot of them. Some of them were Polish and, and Russian conscripts. They not, the, the vast majority were not prepared to fight to the very last breath. So they were they were shocked, and the um, and if you go further up the command chain, Rommel Owen Rommel, who was uh, commander of German forces in Normandy, he wasn't actually in Normandy that day. He was back in in Germany uh, celebrating his wife's birthday. So he heard about the invasion when he was uh, several hundred miles away. Hitler himself was woken late that morning. He had a habit of going to bed very late and was woken. And uh, he didn't believe that this was the main invasion. He thought it was a diversionary operation and that he, he thought that the main invasion would still come across the Pas de Calais. That's the shortest part of the, the uh, English Channel between England and France near Calais, you know, two or three hundred miles from where we actually landed on D-Day. So Hitler actually thought that this was just a diversionary tactic and he was happy. He said, well, you know, we can't, we can't kill the enemy while they're in England. We, now, now that they've arrived in France, we could start to destroy them. You know, he was a complete crazy madman, madman, uh, always was, but by that stage of the war was really insane. Uh, and he, he was happy. He was seen smiling because, you know, he'd been waiting for this invasion and finally it had begun. But even a couple of weeks after D-Day, even in late June of 1944, Hitler still wasn't convinced that all of these guys that we landed in, in Normandy, that they were the main invasion force. He thought that that was, that that would come later, that, that we still hadn't thrown everything we had across the English Channel at the Pas de Calais. Were the Germans able, able to regroup at all after the invasion? Absolutely, yes. They, they, they didn't have enough panzer divisions, tank divisions, in uh, close to the Norman invasion beaches to really do a lot of damage on D-Day itself. Uh, the 21st Panzer Division did, did inflict some, some uh, serious casualties on the, uh, the British and the Canadians, but uh, within three or four days, every every Panzer division that they could find in France was rolling its way towards towards Normandy. And in fact, the Battle of Normandy lasted seventy seven days. And by late June, early July of nineteen forty four, it was a very very bloody affair indeed. Now I have to stress this: that the the Allies enjoyed complete air supremacy. So any German vehicle that moved in July of nineteen forty four in Normandy was going to get hit sooner or later by a, a P-47 Mustang or a, a Mosquito or a, a, any, an Allied fighter plane. 
we, we really could destroy almost everything that moved on the ground. And we did, we could do that on D-Day itself. So you have a German army that, that has no air support. There's, there's absolutely no air support. And yet they fought us to a standstill in Normandy in July of 1944. Over a million Allied soldiers up against around the same number of Germans in Normandy. And we were going absolutely nowhere. So that just goes to show how, how superb the German forces were, how, how hard they fought, how great their tactics were, and how tough it was for us. We, we had the great advantage, and yet we still couldn't move anywhere. At what point did the Allies realize the invasion would be a success? Well, we, we knew at the end of D-Day, of course, of June the 6th, that we, we, we successfully landed over 150,000 guys from the sea and I think 23,000 guys from the, from the air. But we were not sure that whether, where, how long we were going to stay. I mean, no one knew that what the German reaction would be exactly and, and how many forces they would throw at us and whether we could push further inland. We'd only gone, uh, the furthest penetration on D-Day inland was by the Canadians. It was around eight miles. If you looked at Omaha Beach, we only went less than two miles inland. We were really, really under a lot of pressure by the end of D-Day there. We, it had been a very, very difficult fight indeed. So we had landed men, but the big fight was coming. We, we, we knew that um, if we could get ashore on D-Day, the big, big challenge would be to push further inland and, and take key objectives. And we had limited success on D-Day. Two cities in particular, Caen and the town of, uh, of Bayer, we were supposed to seize those on D-Day. Caen in particular was a crucial objective. It was a, a main ra- uh, a road junction. We had to take it to be able to press out of Normandy and reach Paris. And it took us another seven weeks. We were supposed to take it on June the 6th, and it took us another seven weeks to take that city. And yet we were in the outskirts of that city on the evening of D-Day. So that just goes to show you the extent of the German counterattacks and how tough the fighting was after D-Day. And D-Day just set up larger battles. I mean, this the Battle of the Bulge happened, I guess that happened in the winter of that year? Yes, definitely. The we. The Battle of Normandy, we, we broke out of Normandy in early August of 1944, um, so, uh, more than seven weeks later, uh, uh, more than seven weeks after D-Day. So we broke out during Operation Cobra. And then the 77-day Battle of Normandy, in which 20,000 Americans were killed, over 100,000 Allied casualties, that ended on the 25th of August 1944 with the liberation of Paris. That's the sort of formal historically accepted end of the Battle of Normandy. But then we had to do a very difficult job, which was to then defeat Nazi Germany in Germany. And that began in September of 1944 with American forces nearing Aachen. And then December 1944, there was the Battle of the Bulge, the the greatest battle ever fought by uh, the U.S. Army, over 800,000 Americans involved. And then it was a bitter, long slog right through to victory in Europe, in uh, on the 7th of May, 1945. Um, and it got more and more difficult in terms of combat the longer that war lasted. Uh, just one example, uh, over, oh, sorry, almost 20,000 Americans killed in Europe alone in January of 1945, which is a, the highest number of American fatalities in World War II in Europe, higher, than, higher even than June and July of 1944 during the Battle of Normandy. 
So one thing I didn't know about D-Day that you highlight in this book is that only three American soldiers who took part in the, the invasion earned the Medal of Honor. And but despite there's but you describe all these super heroic actions that so many soldiers took. Like why were so few Medal of Honors given out? Well, you know, actually there were four Medal of Honor recipients, American Medal of Honor recipients on D-Day. One was actually Theodore Roosevelt Jr., the, the general we talked about earlier on. He received the Medal of Honor. Actually, he died tragically of a of heart attack on the 12th of July. Uh, he's buried beside his brother in the Colville Samir graveyard today. And then there were three other Americans who received the highest award for valor. They all belonged to the Big Red One, the first division, which landed on Omaha Beach. And of those three guys, only one guy came home. Now, there were 153 Distinguished Service Crosses awarded to Americans for actions on Omaha Beach. There probably should have been more. Certainly, there were several cases of guys who should have received the Medal of Honor for their valor on Omaha Beach, whose medal recommendations were downgraded. So one of the guys that did actually receive the medal, one of the three guys that received the medal from the Big Red One for actions on Omaha, was a guy called Jimmy Monteith, and he was fatally wounded on, on Omaha. And um, incredibly, Allied Supreme Commander Dwight Eisenhower intervened and placed a note in the recommendation file saying that Monteith should receive the Medal of Honor and it shouldn't be downgraded to a, a DSC. There were several cases where guys had Medal of Honors downgraded to the Distinguished Service Cross. And this was done by three-man committees far, far away from the, the front line. They were basically bureaucrats you know, downgrading Medal of Honor recommendations. And I think the fear was that there would have been too many guys receiving the Medal of Honor and that somehow that might have diluted its importance. But if you if you look at it and you really understand what happened on Omaha Beach, there should have been dozens of guys received the Medal of Honor because the actions they performed were absolutely what the Medal of Honor requires. You know, they had to show intrepidity, great courage, and they had to lead others and save other guys' lives. And that's what exactly they did. There were dozens and dozens of guys who, who died doing that. And I believe that it would be a, a good thing if in the next few years we actually took those cases of guys who had their, their awards downgraded and, 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 and did them some justice. Is there a movement afoot to do that? Um, I don't know whether it's widespread. I certainly know that there are several cases of, of guys who received the DSC for example, Dick Winters with E Company of the 101st Airborne, the famous commander of Easy Company of, of Band of Brothers fame, he received the DSC, and a lot of people think that he should have received the Medal of Honor. And there, there were there was a movement at one point to have him him have his DSC upgraded to a Medal of Honor. I think you know it's astonishing when you when you think that out of all those guys on D-Day, out of you know, more than 50,000 American troops on D-Day, only four guys received the highest award for, for valor. Well, put it this way, the British have even more to complain about because we only had one guy, one single British guy, receive our highest award for valor, which was the Victoria Cross. And that seems to me to be astonishing that we only had one out of so many tens of thousands of Brits who, who was given the highest award. Was the same thing happening in Britain, as it was happening in America, bureaucrats were just deciding. I don't know. It's a, it's a very good question. You know, one of the one of the problems with receiving the Victoria Cross or 
the Medal of Honor is that you, ha- you had to have eyewitnesses and you had to have, you know, really sort of firm, documented statements from people that saw you carry out the action. And the problem, problem on Omaha uh, in particular was that so many officers were killed so that even though they'd seen extraordinary acts of valor, there was no one around afterward to bear witness to it. So, you know, many veterans have told me over the years that, you know, there were so many cases of guys that should have received the Medal of Honor, but but no one was alive to report their actions. And the, the officers that were alive at the time were killed later. There was so much confusion and, and carnage that many, many, many acts of extreme valor went unnoticed and un, unreported. Alex, what do you want people to be left feeling and thinking after they finish your book? I want people to realize that it was a very tough job indeed, that there was no assurance of success on D-Day, and that, you know, it really came down to individuals in the end. It came down to key key combat leaders, young combat leaders, many of them untested, who carried the day. You know, we, we really did reach certain key critical moments on D-Day where if it had not been for certain individuals, that invasion would have failed and world history would have been different. So a massive operation, huge, hard to get your head around. But when it came down to it, it, it came, it really, really depended for its success on certain individuals. And I think when the mission is right, when the stakes are, are very, very high, when civilization is on the line, ordinary people can perform miracles. And, and that really is the, the takeaway from my book, that these extraordinary acts of heroism were performed by ordinary individuals who've never been in combat before. Well, Alex, where can people go to learn more about the book? Uh, you can go to Amazon.com or my website, alexkershaw.com. And Barnes and Noble, any good bookstore is going to have the book book there right now. Well, Alex Kershaw, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you so much. My guest today was Alex Kershaw. He is the author of the book, The First Wave, The D-Day Warriors Who Led the Way to Victory in World War II. It's available on Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can also find out more information about his work at his website, alexkershaw.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash D-Day, where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Check out our website, artofmanliness.com, where you can find our podcast archives. There's over 500 there. Also, thousands of articles rewritten over the years about personal finance, World War II history, physical fitness, you name it, we've got it. And if you'd like to hear Art of Manliness ad-free, you can do so only on Stitcher Premium. For a free month of Stitcher Premium, sign up at stitcherpremium.com and use promo code MANLINESS. Once you sign up, you can download the Stitcher app for iOS and Android. So again, get a free month of Stitcher Premium and ad-free Art of Manliness by going to stitcherpremium.com using promo code MANLINESS. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate it if you take one minute to give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. Helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think would get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay reminding you not only listen to the AWIN podcast, but put what you've heard into action.